This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogs. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist that works in Halifax, part-time community, part-time academic, and you hear from me every time. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside of your center, and you don't always get a chance to get information about topics that maybe aren't as readily available in your center. And so this podcast is designed to try to change some of that. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Perry Graywall from Edmonton, Alberta. He does predominantly dermatology practice in a community office. He's involved in a lot of clinical trials. And if you've been at any of the big conferences over the past couple of years, you've probably seen him talk. So thanks so much, Perry, for joining me. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks so much for having me on. So when I was thinking about topics that we could cover, one of the things that comes up frequently, at least at my center, is how do you start a biologic and thinking about some of the finesse around what you do for investigations, um, what kind of patients you consider putting on biologics or who maybe you don't. And so I thought we could talk about some of that stuff. Um, I remember back, so we were residents uh, at the same time, you know, different ends of the country, but I know we wrote our exam the same year. And I feel like we were kind of right at that burning edge of when biologics were first becoming available uh, for for psoriasis and for all of our uh, skin conditions. And so when I feel like when I was a resident, I didn't have a whole lot of grasp about all these different nuances. And I've had to learn a lot of that since getting into practice. I You're probably the same. But um, first, before we talk about any specifics, do you have any resources that you would recommend to the residents in terms of thinking about biologics or just a basic um, place for them to look about information about starting biologics? Well, yeah, no, it's like you said, I think we came through at a time when there was a lot of transition in dermatology. I remember, you know, very clearly uh, back when we were going through, even at that time, we had some professors who were willing to start biologics, others who thought it was too new and they were quite hesitant. Uh, but I think as years have passed, uh, we've come to realize like how much of a value they are to us and our patients. Uh, in terms of resources, I think um, there's multiple sources out there. Um, I know a lot of the textbooks now with Bologna and Wolverton focus heavily on biologics. Um, you know, there's uh, various guidelines out through the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology as well that has a great um, sort of series on biologics and what to do and how to sort of start them and what things to monitor. And I think uh, peers are great too. I think especially when you look at um, conferences, um, advisory meetings, different uh, events that are held, whether they're national or international. I think uh, you pick up a lot of knowledge just from the people around you. I agree with that. And I still, from time to time, come across colleagues that are a little bit hesitant to start biologics. And uh, so one of the things I want to make sure is that residents uh, get information and get proper information. And these aren't really big, bad, scary drugs. So First, um, one of the things that they wanted to know is, and I'm going to reword their question a little bit, but if you're thinking about a patient that's going to be going on biologics, what do you think about in terms of baseline workup? What do you do right from the outset? And at what point during um, that interaction with the patient do you do that that uh, workup? So for example, if you see a patient new consult coming into your office, 30% body surface area of psoriasis, 
what, what's your, how do you kind of approach that patient? What do you do? Uh, well, it's like you said, I mean, we kind of take a multimodal approach. Uh, so first we want to get an idea of, you know, their psoriasis, how long they've had it. Uh, comorbidities is very important as well in previous therapies. Um, in terms of what kind of workup I do, again, it's like you said, if they have quite severe psoriasis, um, you might know moving down in the future that you're going to have to put them on some sort of biological therapy. Uh, so essentially, we'll do uh, baseline blood work, so blood counts, liver function tests, uh, kidney function tests, uh, like creatinine and possibly GFR. Um, if I know I'm going to put them on immunosuppressives down the road, again, I might start doing uh, chest x-rays or TB tests. Um, some of the biologic companies now are even offering uh, quantifiron tests or setting up those things uh, on your behalf, which is making it easier and easier for us all the time. Um, and then you might want to look at other serology as well. So definitely want to check uh, perhaps hepatitis B, hepatitis C. Um, in my practice, and it varies from location to location, I usually check for HIV as well. Um, but again, it's interesting because um, a lot of these tests are fairly standard, but again, there's no one specific guideline that people have to follow. Uh, but that's essentially what I would do for kind of a workup before putting them on uh, systemic therapy or possibly biologic therapy. And so just to, just to confirm, so you would think about that before you start them on any systemics, maybe adding in that TB test or the hepatitis serology. I think that sometimes people um, only do the blood work that's related to say the cyclosporin or the methotrexate they're going to start and they don't and then you're sort of putting in more delay when you eventually go to a biologic so I know for me I will often do the TB test right at the outset so I have it and it sounds like you would often do that as well yeah I think if they're definitely heading down that path I'd probably do it in advance if it's someone with a BSA or PASI score of where they might not qualify for biologics or kind of from the outset you know that they might not want to go down that route uh, then perhaps I might not do those testings, especially if, you know, I mean, there are other issues with, you know, false positive TB tests and things like that as well. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I do it for every case, but again, if it's very severe and I kind of have that idea that they're going to probably progress uh, to needing something more advanced, then like you said, it's just saves everybody time and effort and then everything is kind of lined up and ready to go. Do you routinely do a chest x-ray or do you find that you only do it in people where you may have a concern about an underlying granulomatous condition, or maybe if they're a long-time smoker, that they could have a baseline chest x-ray to rule out any malignancy. When Do you, do you routinely do a chest x-ray, or do you just do it, again, in the clinical context? You know, for me personally, again, I routinely do it. Um, again, sometimes you get these equivocal TB skin tests, you know, someone might have a six or seven millimeter uh, test, and then you go, well should I do something or not? And then you look at other risk factors to see whether if it's a positive or not. So for me, in that context, if there's not a lot of risk factors in a negative chest x-ray, then it just makes me more comfortable to start therapy at that point in time. Um, so again, I just like to preempt things. So rather than trying to track down the patient and reorder it, I'll just give them all the forms right at the outset and get them to do it. Now, one of the questions the residents wanted to know um, was about strongyloides. And I know we've all, you know, I'll, I'll hear Scott Walsh talk about something. I'll be in Toronto. I'll be all of a sudden panicked that I'm not checking all these patients for strongyloides. And then I remember that I live in Halifax and that the risk of strongyloides for most patients is pretty low. In what context would you consider doing strongyloides baseline serology or do you ever do that? Well, it's like you said, we're in Alberta. It's about minus 40 right now with wind chill. Um, I don't think strongyloides will ever survive here. Um, so uh, it's like you said, you hear it kind of in the periphery from certain uh, physicians and in certain clinical contexts. 
Um, me personally, I've never ordered the test. Um, I don't think there's any real reason to, especially for people that sort of live here. I mean, maybe if you're from a tropical or subtropical nation where there's a higher prevalence, perhaps. Uh, but again, I've never had to order it myself or never seen any cases of that. So I routinely do not order it. Okay, good enough. Um, in terms of thinking about these patients, and I mean, obviously, when it comes to any systemic therapy, every patient is different, every patient is unique. But what type of general patient are you looking at for a biologic? And what I mean by that is, you know, you're looking at the BSA or you're looking at the PASI or maybe you're one of those people and you probably are that can kind of think about a PASI score in your mind when you're seeing a patient. But what are the general criteria with which you're looking at a patient going, this is going to be a biologic patient? Well, it's like you said, uh, I think it's difficult. I mean, there's no one archetype of patient that walks in that you might think needs a biologic. Um, uh, like you said, I mean, definitely you have to consider PASI and BSA and DLQI scores, essentially, because, you know, you need certain criteria to get them covered for biologics anyway. Um, but I think a lot boils down to the patient as well. I mean, you get these patients with, you know, quite severe disease, whether it's psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis. Uh, I remember I, I have one patient who I've been trying for years to get onto biologic, and he's got really bad um, spondyloarthropathy and psoriasis. Basically, his neck is fused. He can't even really turn or move or shoulder check or anything like that. And despite me telling him the benefits of these treatments, he's just very resistant and doesn't want to do it. And then you get the flip side. You get someone coming in with two spots saying, oh, I saw this commercial for drug X and I want to go on it today. And you go, well, it doesn't really work like that. The drugs cost X <laughs> amount and you got to take methotrexate and phototherapy and you know, different criteria in different provinces. Um, so again, I think it's a little bit difficult to have that one specific patient in mind. But I, I think, again, like you said, if they have like, you know, a PASI of 10, a BSA of 10, uh, DLQI scores of 10 or higher, um, if they're quite psychosocially bothered by it, if they're developing comorbidities, I think those are all sort of the type yeah. of patient that you're going to see and put on biologic. Yeah, I really do love it when a patient comes in with sort of like a little sweaty piece of paper with like, a, you know, a Humira or Taltz written on it. And then they've got 1% body surface. Oh, yeah, so exactly. <laughs> of managing expectations. Oh, yeah. I think also, um, you know, one of the things that I always talk to the residents about, and I think sometimes they forget they get bogged down in the PSA or the, the BSA 10%. And so uh, for special sites as well, I'm sure you have a, a number of patients in your practice, but, you know, I certainly have people that have... Uh, vulvar psoriasis that I have on a biologic or, or a limited scalp with face psoriasis on a biologic. Mm -hmm. Do you have a number of those patients as well? I guess I, I never want to forget about biologics. Yeah, no, ways. you're 100% right. I mean, that's a great point. And that's why, again, you can't just strictly go on BSA or PASI scores. I mean, you know, some of the most severe patients who have a DLQI score of 30 have severe palmoplantar plantar or genital or scalp psoriasis. So these special sites that we talk about. And again, a lot of companies are willing to sort of, you know, finance or pay for these medications, even if they don't meet that certain threshold. So yeah, I too have lots of patients that benefit from these treatments. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. You definitely can't forget about that sort of group as well. And I think that's a really good point, And we'll come back to it just in terms of coverage. But and I know everything varies from province to province, but I will loop back to that. I know one of the things that I found challenging starting practice and even still sometimes is calculating a PASI or calculating a PASI adequately. Do you have any special tips? Do you use an online module? How do you typically do PASI in your practice? I think really it's just 
doing it again and again and again ad nauseum. I mean, for us doing clinical trials, I mean, sometimes I'm doing like six, seven, eight PASI scores a day. And so again, just doing it again and again, you just get faster and faster. And then you get pretty good at eyeballing and saying, okay, you know, 30% here, 20% here, and then, you know, redness, thickness scale. So for me, it's actually, it's just the memorization and doing it again and again that kind of makes it faster. I actually find it a bit slower to like, you know, use an online tool, log into a computer, set it up and do it that way. I just do it on paper sort of quickly and then just do the math as fast as I can. Yeah, that's, I'm probably terrible at math, so I'm a cheater and I use PASI. But, um, <laughs> when, when my phone's math, not available, it's very painful. Math can be challenging. I agree with that. That's why I went into dermatology. <laughs> I have a calculator in every room. Um, in terms of, you know, I don't think that it's really uh, a good use of time to talk about how you choose which biologic for which patient, because I think there's so many factors that are involved there. But, um, you know, in terms of thinking about starting a patient on a biologic, let's say you already have them on a systemic treatment. So they're on methotrexate or they're on cyclosporin. How do you transition them over to a biologic? Would you do a washout? Do you overlap? What's your general practice for an average patient in that regard? Uh, so again, I almost never wash anyone out. I mean, we have lots of studies from psoriasis and, you know, other conditions as well, like rheumatoid and uh, other diseases like Crohn's, where you have a lot of concomitant use of systemic therapy and biologic therapy. Um, so definitely, if they're on things like methotrexate, I mean, I'm okay to basically say one day stop methotrexate, apply them for biologic, and if they get covered in a week, they can start whenever they get covered for it. And even if they took them both together, I'm fine with it. Um, as per cyclosporin, I, I probably wouldn't want to overlap them for too long. So um, I would probably feel comfortable starting them at the same time, but at some point I'd probably want to stop the cyclosporin and just keep them on the biologic by itself. Okay. And I guess that would answer my next question, which would be, do you have a lot of patients that are concomitantly taking uh, systemic therapy like methotrexate combined with your biologic for patients? Yeah, Seems I, to be more I, of a rheumatology practice. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, when we have more of like RA or sometimes PSA, then we're looking at concomitant therapy. But I mean, for us in dermatology, we're kind of lucky. Most of our big pivotal studies and trials, everything we essentially do is monotherapy. Um, so my personal practice, again, is to try to keep them on one agent. And, and I think um, for dermatology patients, it's a bit different because, you know, we're always telling them like the bad sides of systemic therapy, all the side effects they could get, all the problems they're going to run into. And so then I think it's a little harder for us to justify and saying, well, no, we want you to stay on that as well. I think the way it's sort of positioned, and I think it's the same for a lot of derms, is we say, well, if this doesn't work, then we'll switch you to biologic therapy. Um, so I think that's basically what I end up doing, and I think most people follow the same practice. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I think from two, um, I've heard two perspectives on this over time as well, and one of them is thinking about the fact that some of these drugs that we've had around forever do work, so I try not to forget about the fact that occasionally if I put a patient on methotrexate, it's going to be effective, and that's all they're going to need. I also think about the cost effectiveness, and so, you know, as stewards of the whatever whatever we want to call it, but, you know, the, the financial side of medicine um, probably is worth a try. So I, I like to word it that way too, kind of say, we're going to try you. And then if this doesn't work, then we'll consider these other medications rather than it seeming like one's this terrible side effect laden, you know, pill from the medieval times and one's this wonderful new medication. So yeah. I think that's a really important point. 
Yeah, no, I think that's critical too. Because again, you're going to have a lot of patients on methotrexate. And I mean, methotrexate does work, whether you're talking about psoriasis or other conditions like atopic dermatitis. So I've had several people on very comfortably for years. And even if you bring up the topic of biologics, they'll say, no, I'm happy. I'm doing well. Everything is going good. There's no issues, no side effects. And I mean, we know even potentially too, some of these drugs can be remittive. So um, even in the last six months, I had a couple of ladies I had on methotrexate for about a year, year and a half who stopped their drug and still doing fine six months, a year later, sort of it's clear. And I have other people even in their 20s and 30s been on methotrexate for quite some time and very happy. So I think you're right too. I mean, it's pretty, you know, you get all this inundation with all these fancy biologics and, you know, all these advisory meetings and everything else like that. Uh, but drugs like methotrexate, treatments like phototherapy, there's still a huge workforce or, or sorry, workhorse of treatment that we're doing here. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty happy with those treatments as long as they're working well. Yeah, agree. I mean, I made the mistake of having a lady on methotrexate by one of my colleagues for, I don't know, 12 or 14 years, and her liver enzymes were sort of straight on the upper limit of normal. So I got a bit nervous and convinced her to switch. And I got to tell you, she does not have as good control. And she blames me, rightfully, but, uh, you know, that's a rarity, but I think it does happen. So in any event, um, thinking about that, when you have a patient on a biologic, again, not the specifics of which biologic it is, but say they're going along, at what point would you typically see them for first visit after you start them? Three months, six months, 12 months, what would be your average time to see that patient back? Yeah, so if it's initial biologic, I, I think almost it's a bit dictated by insurance. You're almost mandated to see them back in three months because you have to score their skin again. So I'd say for everybody, yes, in three months, I'm seeing them back. And then it really depends. I mean, you have some patients that uh, like to see us, for example, for Stelera injections, so they will basically come every three months uh, on the dot, um, basically just to get their injections and it's a quick, hi, how you doing? Um, and then, you know, you've got your other ones that could be on any drug, whether it's Enbrel, Humira, Stelera, Taltz, Cosentix, whatever. And they'll just come in once a year again for their renewal or their paperwork. Um, so I think the only trouble we run into is when people forget that the renewal is coming up and then we're trying to scramble to get them into clinic, track which happens more often than not trying to track them down. Uh, but I, I guess I really leave it up to the patient. Like I'll definitely see them once a year. Um, but if they want injections with us, we'll see them more frequently. Okay. I wanted to touch on the idea of uh, switch or escalation of dose, or I guess what I like to consider dose optimization. So um, again, not to pick on a drug, but say I have a patient on Stelera, they're on, they're 100 kilos, they're on 90 milligrams Q12. Um, at what period of time do you make that decision? Like, hey, don't know if this is going to work. And then would you consistently plan to dose optimize that patient or bump you know, decrease the, the frequency? Or would you at that point switch because we have so many options? I guess what's your what are your thoughts on switch versus dose optimization? Again, yeah. generally speaking, not for a specific patient? Well, for sure. Um, I think this concept's been talked about a little bit. And I've heard this kind of uh, saying before of what we call squeeze the lemon. Uh, so basically, that means, you know, you want to try to maximize whatever therapy somebody's on. Um, so whether they're on, you know, methotrexate or a biologic, my preference, especially if they're not having any adverse events, is to try to maximize that dosage um, and sort of push it as much as you can. And you can maximize it in one of two ways. So if people are not really getting a great initial response, 
um, you know, and they still have residual plaques when you're seeing them, then I'll try to increase the dosage that they're receiving. Um, if they're getting a good response, but then let's say disease is coming back a little bit earlier, um, like to your example, so you're on Stelera, you're doing 90 milligrams, but you know, you can only last 10 weeks and it's back. So then I'll just kind of shorten the interval. And so we've done a lot of different things for people. I mean, you know, we have some patients on TALTS 80 milligrams every two weeks. Uh, we've got some patients on Stelera 90 milligrams every six to eight weeks. So you can really kind of play around with the dosing quite a bit. And then, um, at, you know, at the point you get to where you're increasing dosages and decreasing intervals and it's not working at all, then at that point, yeah, I'll consider switching them to something else. Some patients, again, you might consider adding on therapy as well. So if they got two residual plaques, you can add on Enstelar, you can do steroid injections. Maybe they want to come back and do a cycle of phototherapy for two or three months. So that's still fine. Um, but if really you're not getting any kind of response at all, then I'll switch them. And in that same regard, thinking about when we were going from a systemic to a biologic, if you're switching from biologic to biologic, would you tend to just give the next, you know, give the new injection at the same time they would normally get their other injection? So if you were going to like, let's say you were switching from Stelera to, or sorry, you were switching from Ustekinumab to Gazelkumab, instead of their next Stelera injection, you'd give them their Trimphi injection. Is that how you would do it? Or do you do a washout for biologic switches? Well, again, yeah, no, I just follow that mandate. Um, <clears throat> the problem with some of these longer acting biologics, I mean, they have really long half-lives, right? So if you're really waiting to do a proper washout, I mean, patients could be waiting for weeks or months. And I sort of feel like, you know, if they're flaring up and it's not really working all that well for their disease, they probably aren't having, you know, a tremendous amount of drug in their system anyway, doing anything important. Um, so I'm pretty happy to just give them their new biologic, essentially when their old biologic was due. Great. Um, this is a question that I get a lot from patients directly, and I'm sure that you get it too, but you start them on one of these medications and they go, okay, great. Um, now, how long do I need to be on it? Like six months, a year? What do you do in terms of the expectation for the patient? Do you tell them at the outset, you're going to be on this forever? Um, do you ever consider a drug holiday? Do you generally try to taper off of it? Or do you just kind of go, here you go, you're good. Um, you're going to be on this for the rest of your life. Well, it's you like and Phil Mickelson. Said, yeah. I mean, we know psoriasis is a lifelong disease for many people. I mean, it's, it's, I always find it tough to break a patient's heart right off the bat and say, well, you're stuck with it. This is how it is forever. <laughs> so I, I try to give them a little bit of hope if I can. And, and it is true. I mean, there are, you know, studies now showing whether it's with, again, methotrexate or photo or biologics that people go into remission. Um, so I tell them kind of both ends of the story. I say, you know, there are people that have pretty bad psoriasis. They have it their whole life. And, you know, some people have to be on these treatments for years, potentially. And then I do tell them on the flip side, there are people who get better and we see them in clinic all the time as well. Um, so essentially giving them a little bit of hope that, yeah, the disease could remit. And if it does, then at some point they can um, try to go off the biologic if they want to. And I guess the way that I think about it, and this is completely made up in my own head, so I'm going to be curious to see what you do. But if I do have a patient that's really adamant that they want to stop or they believe that they're in a remission, um, what I will tend to do is just extend out their interval between injections and then see if they're able to get to a certain amount of time, then stop rather than just sort of cold turkey stop. But what would your practice be 
typically. Oh, no, that. I follow the same thing. I call it the Carrie Purdy method. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's catching on. Fantastic. <laughs> it's catching on. We're going we're gonna to start it. I'm going to need uh, a name for that, too. Podcast. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I do the same thing. Like, I never tell people to just kind of stop cold turkey. Um, just like you said, I tell them to sort of draw it out a little bit. And I do that for a couple of reasons. Like you said, you get a better handle on if they're actually kind of going into remission. But the other thing is just with coverage. I mean, you never want to, you know, tell whoever's covering their drug that they don't need it anymore and that they kind of cut off their coverage or lose it. Um, so I'll tell them to, and we'll work with them and get in touch with their like uh, whatever patient support program and say, well, we want to try to stretch out the interval a bit. And then if it flares, we bring it back. And if it stays pretty good, um, then we just keep it at that. And then, like you said, if they're doing great, then you could give them a break at some point. Okay. Speaking of stopping things cold turkey, I think this is probably a good time to go to our first question. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Noelle Wong, and I am a dermatology resident at Dalhousie University. In regards to biologics, are there any surgeries that patients will need to have their biologics held for? Thanks, Noelle, for that question. Perry, although this would not typically be our practice, the thing that I think a lot of us run into um, is what happens when your friendly neighborhood orthopedic surgeon stops the medication cold turkey. So uh, I'm married to a surgeon. I feel like I can in some ways diss them a little bit. But in general, I find that surgeons are super nervous about biologics. They've really blown the risk of infection out of proportion. Do you try to preempt that if you know that a patient's going to have a surgery? Have you had any success in convincing uh, surgeons that they should keep the patient on the medication? I have to admit, I haven't had a lot of success. I try, but you know, how do you manage that whole perisurgical uh, biologic conundrum, if you will? Well, it's like you said, surgeons are not easy to convince of anything. I mean, <laughs> they're always right, almost, don't you know? Yeah, I know. They're always right. Um, well, I mean, the problem is it's like a duality. You're always stuck between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, they're like, well, we won't operate if they have psoriasis on their leg that's going to cause an infection. So you have a real difficult time convincing them that it's not going to. And then on the other hand, they won't operate if you give them a treatment to fix their psoriasis anyway. So you're always kind of stuck between the two options. Um, so for me personally, and I'm sure, like you said, for you as well, I mean, I don't think they confer a tremendously high risk of infections like with surgery, especially if they're more minor kind of local procedures and things like that. And I think that data has also been shown in like, you know, other diseases like Crohn's or colitis where, you know, they just keep them on their treatments if they have to do, you know, pretty invasive resections or surgeries and things like that. Um, so again, my practice generally is, you know, if it's pretty something minor local, then just kind of stay on treatment. If it's a bit more invasive, then sometimes I'll get them to try to plan to do the surgery around the next time their biological injection was due. And then basically wait about a week or so or however much time it takes for them to heal up. And then when they're kind of on the mend, then basically just resume the biologic. So essentially you're giving them like maybe a week, week and a half break in between. Okay. Yeah, that seems pretty reasonable. Um, and, and like you said, there were certain surgeries or maybe, you know, obviously like an emergency surgery, this is a moot point. But looking at specific types of surgery where you might consider, uh, would that be more of like a major abdominal surgery uh, or, you know, oral surgery or are there certain 
looking at the data, I think there's certain types of surgery that are meant to be a little bit more likely to result in an infection. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, if it's more high risk, like mucosal surfaces, or let's say they've had like endocarditis or a heart valve or something like that, or they have a higher risk of infection, then yeah, you get a little more nervous and might be wanting to stop the drug a little more. But again, if it's, you know, something that's a bit more minor, local, they're pretty healthy otherwise, um, and they're pretty clean incisions, then I'm, I'm okay with it. The problem is when you look at the literature, like often they'll suggest stopping these drugs for like three to four to five half-lives. And again, you know, if you run into these drugs that people take that have monthly or every three monthly dosing, I mean, you'd be off of it for such a long time before you could do anything. So I think practicality kind of comes into it as well. So I think you just kind of have to work with the patient and try your best to work with the surgeon as much as they're willing to listen to you, and then try to get the patient the best outcome. Right. Uh, thinking about the other hot topic or hot button issue or contentious area around biologics is pregnancy. And that brings us to our next question. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Bahar Barani, and I am a dermatology resident at the University of Toronto. I have a question about how do you start a biologic in a woman who wants to get pregnant, is pregnant, or is breastfeeding? Thanks, Bahar. Okay, let's look at each of those scenarios separately. So part one, what if your patient isn't pregnant but planning to get pregnant? What do you advise them? Uh, part two, what if your patient becomes pregnant when they're on the biologic? What do you do? And then what about post-pregnancy in the, the breastfeeding um, realm? What do you advise patients of? So maybe you just talk about the first bit first. So let's say you have a young, you know, 30-year-old woman um, looking at maybe getting pregnant in the next one to two years, but has really severe psoriasis that you think needs a biologic. How do you broach that subject or how do you, I guess, answer her questions about safety in pregnancy? Well, I just tell them don't get pregnant. No, <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> that it makes my life too complicated. <laughs> sure that goes over super well. Yeah, it goes over really <clears throat> well. Um, but no, um, to be honest with you, um, yeah, I mean, it's a big issue. I mean, a lot of our patients are going to be women of childbearing years. And you really have to take that into context if you're talking about really any treatments you're doing. Uh, whether it's systemics like methotrexate, cyclosporin, or biologics. Um, so for me, I mean, I consider phototherapy fairly safe. So if a patient wants to get treated and they're really nervous about biologics, injectables, and you know they've read this on the internet or read that and they're very nervous, um, I'm okay to maybe stop their biologic and put them onto phototherapy and topicals while they're pregnant and then to resume afterwards if they want to. Um, personally, however, though, I feel uh, most biologics, and we're getting more and more data all the time, are, are fairly safe in pregnancy, um, especially up to like my personal feelings up to second trimester. Yeah. Um, so I'm more than willing to keep patients on it. Um, third trimester, again, you might want to consider stopping just so they don't have any immunosuppressives, so vaccines and things like that for the infant will take. Um, but I'm okay leaving them on up to second trimester if they're okay with it as well. Uh, and now, I mean, we're a little bit lucky over the last uh, few months, uh, sertilizumab or Simsia has entered the market as well for, uh, and we can prescribe that now for psoriasis. Um, and so with its sort of unique pegylated structure, um, we know it has uh, almost no capacity to pass through to the placenta or pass into breast uh, milk either. Um, so 
I think moving forward, uh, again, I've been pretty comfortable up to this point with most biologics, but again, I might lean a little bit towards that one as well, uh, especially in women who might be actively trying to get pregnant at some point in time. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I often borrow from uh, our colleagues in GI and know that the risk of a Crohn's flare during a pregnancy tends to be worse than um, being on these medications during a pregnancy. So there's registry data from that side of things. But I think it is something that is sometimes a little bit different when we're talking about pure cutaneous psoriasis. So um, I, I like that. So in terms of the breastfeeding, is there any other... Um, advice that you give patients uh, surrounding breastfeeding if you're not thinking or they're not able to be on a medication like Simsia? Um, yeah, so again, I mean, we know even from previous data with other drugs like Etanercept and things like that, there's very little transfer into breast milk. So again, if they want to resume right after, I'm fine with that. And if they wanted to take a little bit of time and do like, you know, topical therapies, phototherapy, whatever, until they're finished breastfeeding, I'm okay with that too. I think the biggest issue, you know, is just working with the patient because you get the two types. You get the ones that are really worried about flare-ups that want to keep their disease under control as much as possible. And then you get the other ones that are just really worried about the pregnancy in general uh, or breastfeeding. So I'll kind of give them all the information and facts and then basically just kind of try to do whatever, you know, makes them happy at the end of the day. Or you have the people like me who were so sick when they were pregnant that they would take any amount of Zofran that any doctor would give them at any given time. So there's nice. always those people <laughs> as well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's take one last resident question. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Sabrina, and I am a dermatology resident at the University of Calgary. I have a question about starting biologic therapy. So say my patient has latent TB, but I would like to start a biologic. How long do I have to wait before safely starting biologic? Thanks, Sabrina. And I guess I would add to that, what patients do you refer to ID to be seen prior to initiating a biologic? Uh, so again, I mean, if there's uh, any risk of TB or latent TB with like a, you know, chest x-ray, positive quantifieron or positive skin tests, I'll always refer them to our like TB clinic. Um, and then basically they'll do their assessments. More often than not, they'll start them on tuberculosis therapy, uh, which will typically last for about nine months, give or take. Um, there's no firm, firm guidelines as to when you should start biologic therapy. Um, talking to our colleagues, whether they're dermatologists or infectious disease experts, I mean, Mostly, I think the consensus is that you can start after about two to three months of latent tuberculosis therapy. So that's my practice, just to make sure they've had two to three months of therapy and then, you know, start a biologic. Um, and to that point as well, in terms of selecting biologics, again, if you're worried about tuberculosis, let's say you work with a population where it's a bit more endemic, or let's say your patient travels quite a bit overseas, again, to more endemic areas, um, uh, my personal preference would might be to lean more towards an IL-17 inhibitor. Um, I believe as to this date, there's really been no reported cases of reactivation of tuberculosis. And um, so I think personally, I would lean more towards that if I had to start them on something anyway. So I think that one of the challenges now that we have so many drugs on the market and so many biologic options is deciding what to choose when. And again, you know, we've discussed this, we've touched on it. There's lots of factors, patient comorbidities, half-life. Do they have a, a psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis? Do they have IBD? And of course, you know, 
all those things have to be taken into consideration on an individual basis. But I guess I'm looking, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit about, let's say you have a patient that comes in, uh, they've got severe psoriasis, they've also got psoriatic arthritis, it's going to be a while before they see a rheumatologist, so the choice is yours. What kind of, what class of medication would you tend to start with in that type of patient? Uh, so again, I think I'd probably still favor TNF-alpha agents, or IL-17 agents. Um, personally, I think they still have the best data for arthritis and PSA. Um, so those are probably the ones I'd favor. Um, the 12-23 data, I mean, it was okay. It wasn't as robust. And I think the IL-23s are still a bit of an evolving story. I don't think we got the full picture yet, whether or not they will be as effective. Um, so those are probably the two categories I'd still stick with for those patients. If you were looking at a person that had maybe palmar and plantar psoriasis or pustular psoriasis, I tend to start with a retinoid, but then moving on to a biologic, what would you have a would you have a preference in that category? Uh, again, I think you got really good, robust data on all the categories. So the TNFs, the IL-17s, 1223s, and IL-23s as well. Um, so I, I think probably just, again, if you're focusing more on skin clearance, I'd probably stick with the IL-23s and IL-17s. Um, but like I said, TNFs have good data as well. So as long as a patient qualified, I'd be pretty happy to start them on any of those treatments. What about uh, genital psoriasis? You know, sometimes I think uh, patients that have severe genital psoriasis, um, when it comes up, then you want to treat them with something that's going to be effective and fast. So what would be your choice in genital psoriasis? Yeah, I think my go-to would have to be TALTS for that one, ixekizumab. Um, uh, you know, I, I give them credit for doing a lot of the studies in, uh, for that region, um, just because it's something that we just don't talk about much. And, it, um, and unfortunately, patients obviously are pretty self-conscious, so don't really bring it up to us very much either. Um, so for me personally, seeing that data uh, for that specific area, uh, I think I would lean more towards TALTS. Okay. Um, and then one of the other things I often think about, or I think now that we have a lot of choices, maybe it's a little bit different, but if you had a patient that was say, just for a lack of efficacy, failing in a TNF or failing in an IL-17, would you have a tendency to switch with in-class or out of class in that type of patient? Yeah, well, I think, um, nowadays I'd probably, you know, switch out of class. Uh, I think dating ourselves a little bit. Um, if you look back a few years ago, we didn't have a lot of choices. So we were pretty stuck. You know, if you didn't work with one TNF, you were kind of didn't have many choices. You had to go to another TNF. And then finally you said, oh, maybe I can switch him to uh, Stellara because that was new at the time as well. Um, but now with all these new agents we have, uh, new TNFs, new IL-17s, IL-23s, uh, I think with the choices you have, plus with all the great data you have of the studies done with switching between classes, uh, I think now it's just so much easier to switch into a different class if you if you just want, you know, a, a better bang for your buck, a better chance of capturing a response. Yeah, fair enough. I, I think uh, I look back at some of the patients that I started with way back when I started practice and, and you look through their chart notes and it's like etanercept, etanercept, adalimumab, adalimumab, ustekinumab, yeah. ustekinumab, and now they're on gazelkumab, gazelkumab. And so it's just, yeah. it's interesting to see that in some of those patients along the way. Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, no, it's just, Although it's, I still it's think interesting of, in general. Yeah. I still think of myself, you know, as a fresh derm sometimes, and then I, real, I realize I'm not anymore. So <laughs> like when you start, when you stop getting invited to the sort of new in practice stuff, you realize you're a little bit over the hill. Uh, I know, uh, Wait, yeah, I hear you. Although I had a patient today that I saw after 
three years and he's like, you look so young. And I was like, thanks, I'll take the compliment. <laughs> I similarly had a patient go, are you old enough to be a doctor? And I'm like, okay. Like, bless your heart. Bless your heart. <laughs> go get your eyes checked and moving along. Um, <laughs> so thinking about the, th thinking back to way back to those days when we first started practice, do you have any real tips or, or things that you would send, you know, if you could tell yourself starting practice or things that you wish you knew or a couple top hits on on biologic or a practice biologics what would be your things to pass on like what are your pearls or words of wisdom um well i guess there's a few things uh number one it's like you said getting comfortable with paperwork i mean <laughs> when you're a resident you're not studying paperwork. You're not figuring out how to fill out forms. I mean, you're trying to learn about biologics and half-lives and side effects and things like that. Um, but really, when you get into practice, a lot of that stuff falls by the wayside. You got to know which forms to fill out, what the scoring criteria is, what agents they have to fail. Um, so I think getting really familiar with that and all the scoring systems, like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like doing PASI scores again and again and again. So it becomes like second nature and very quickly. I think the other important thing is having like a good team. Uh, I know it varies from province to province in terms of how much nursing staff or support or things people have. Um, but I would say for me, I'm pretty lucky. You know, the clinic I joined has a pretty good team, a really good system of doing paperwork and keeping things in track and getting people on biologics. Um, and that's also something we don't really learn much about in residency in terms of hiring people and having, you know, sort of systems in place to make things more efficient. Um, so those are probably like the two main things I would tell my younger self is, you know, make sure you know how to, sounds pretty boring and sad, not like, hey, these are the winning lotto numbers, but make sure you know how to do paperwork. <laughs> Welcome to the reality of your daily practice. Yeah, the sad, sad reality, yeah. <laughs> Well, listen, uh, Perry, I just wanted to really thank you a lot. Genuine thank you for uh, joining me on this podcast. And I think there's a lot of really good tidbits for the residents and, and for myself as well. I'm writing now notes about Simsia. So um, I, I do want to thank you very much for joining me and taking the time out of your busy schedule. And, you know, I was also just thinking if we went ahead, we could be the Carrie and Perry show. Like it'd be the... We could. Carrie yeah, and Perry. Even better there than dermalogs, yeah. <laughs> but no, but th th thanks to you as well. I think this is a great initiative. And I, I honestly kind of wish uh, this was done for me as a resident. So if I was telling my younger self something else, I'd say, hey, listen to this podcast. <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks again. Nice talking to you. Oh, no problem. Yeah, you too. Dr. Perry Graywall is a dermatologist practicing in Edmonton, Alberta. That's it for another episode of Dermalogs. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like to ask, or if you have any ideas for future topics you'd like us to cover, let us know. Call toll-free at 1-877-DERMLOG or 1-877-337-6564. On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Sam Hanna on the topic of injectables. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.